You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back for the second half hour of Real Presence Live. My name is Jack Canelli. I'm your host. Uh, unfortunately, my wife, Dreen, wasn't able to be with us today because everybody likes her a lot more than me. But uh, sorry, I'm all you got. But uh, flying solo. But uh, we're happy to have for this next half hour uh, Steve Weidenkopf, who was with us the last time that Doreen and I hosted, and we were talking about uh, the the Knights Templar, which is kind of a period of time in the church that I find interesting. In fact, I figure if I could go back to college again, I'd probably be a medievalist of some sort, because I just think it's a kind of an interesting period of time. But we're talking to Steve today about dark times in the papacy in Catholic history. And uh, so, Steve, I'm going to let you kind of uh, introduce yourself and then uh, talk about um, talk about our topic. Absolutely. Hey, Jack, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show again. And uh, sorry that Doreen's not here, but uh, I enjoy talking with you, so I'm happy to, to be with you guys again, or with you again, at least. <laughs> Thank you. Um, We're glad to have you. Uh, so, you know, a little bit about me. I'm an adjunct professor uh, at uh, Christendom College Graduate School of Theology here in Alexandria, Virginia. I teach courses on church history and the Crusades, and uh, was you know very happy to talk with you last time we were we were together about uh, the Templars and and the Crusades and the medieval period. Very fascinating time in church history. Uh, and today, as you mentioned, we're, right, we wanted to talk a little bit about some dark times in church history and. Just as a side note, I have recently, my recent book actually is called Light from Darkness, uh, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil, and came out stronger than before, and I cover some of these dark times uh, that the Church has faced in, in history, and many of those have involved the papacy uh, in that particular book, and, and one of the major um, themes of the book, really, is that, uh, you know, these dark times in the Church's past have really brought about, each of them, at least the ones I cover in the book, really have brought about a time of renewal and reform and restoration in the Church. And sometimes that those, those those times of light, if you will, uh, happens you know, as a result of the crisis pretty immediately, right, uh, to resolve the crisis. Other times, these reforms, renewals, revitalization periods um, happen you know, significantly after the time of crisis. So... Um, it's a good, you know, just a good uh, thought for us in, in our modern day, right, when we have crises and problems and troubles in the Church. Um, you know, we need to recognize that they have the historical knowledge to know that certain things, you know, certain bad things like this, and even worse things, frankly, have happened in the past, but also to recognize and know, too, to have that historical perspective uh, to, to shape our response to those crises in the modern age, right, so that we don't get discouraged, that we, we don't allow these scandals to, uh, you know, um, question our faith, if you will, or have us leave the faith or leave the Church because of them. Yeah, the fact that we survive them, I think, or come out stronger, to me, just kind of uh, is proof that the Holy Spirit does indeed guide the Church. I remember reading, reading a book a number of years ago. It was called The Bad Popes. It was kind of interesting. And uh, you, you'll probably touch on some of those today. And I remember after I finished it, I thought, you know, the fact that we actually survived these guys shows that the Holy Spirit is really in charge. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. I mean, that's one of the major takeaways, right, especially of learning church history, is that we see the, the activity of the Holy Spirit, right? Christ promised that he would send the Spirit to the Church at Pentecost. The, you know, the Spirit came, the Spirit continues to guide, guard, and animate the Church, is how I like to, to put it. And 
And we see that consistently all throughout these 2,000 years. Uh, and that, that, that is a great source of faith and, and hopefully a greater devotion that we can have to the Holy Spirit to see how much you know, God has been involved in the life of the Church and guided and guarded the Church. And so even when we've had some bad times, right, or, or we've had extremely poor and bad leaders, um, whether they were incompetent or whether they were immoral or whether they were both, um, you know, that the Church continued, and uh, the gates of hell did not prevail against it, just and has them, and just as Christ promised us. So, um, yeah, you know, we can look at some of these times of, of, the, of the Church's past that were, uh, you know, less than ideal, and when there were crises and problems. And, you know, one thing to say at the beginning is that there never really has been a time when the Church, when there wasn't problems in the Church, right? I mean, the Church is full of, of um, at least the visible element of the Church here on Earth, right? It's full of fallen yet redeemed creatures, so men and women who can choose to live virtuously or can choose to participate in vice and sin, uh, and even at the highest offices in the Church. And so um, there's always going to be, and there always has been a time of, of crisis, if you will, and then that's okay, right? That's, that's to be expected to a certain extent. Um, but we, we obviously know that we, we want our clergy in particular uh, to live up to the special and holy calling that they have been given. Um, and, and more often than not, frankly, especially within the papacy, that, that has been true. Um, a good number of, of the popes throughout the 2,000-year history of the Church has been saints, and so when you talk about the bad popes or those who were, uh, who were not virtuous and not saintly, um, it's really not a huge number, right? There's only probably a handful, maybe two handfuls worth of popes that we could look at in the Church's past and say, these men were really not good, right? They, they, did, they lived immoral lives, they were incompetent leaders, um, they were very focused on their own, you know, uh, pursuit of wealth or power or prestige. Um, but we can also recognize and know, too, right, that, that these men never taught anything doctrinally that was erroneous or an error or tried to force, uh, you know, some kind of uh, erroneous heretical teaching on the Church. Uh, and that's, again, a testament to the Spirit. Right. Um, so, you know, one, 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 one aspect we can look at or one century is in the ninth and 10th centuries, there was a significantly difficult time in the Church's uh, life, and especially in the papacy, that most people aren't aware of, frankly. Um, not a lot of, is known about that cent- those centuries, if you will. Uh, they're not really covered that much in, in, in many different uh, history books, if you will. But when you look at that time period, from the ninth century, the middle of the ninth century, from the year 867, all the way up until almost the middle of the 11th century, a span of nearly 200 years, uh, in, the, in which there were 44 popes, there were only two popes during that time who were canonized. Um, so that gives you a sense of during this time, it was a really dark time in the papacy. So what was happening? Well, you had this transition of Europe and the political structures of Europe from the Western Roman Empire, which fell at the end of the 5th century, it collapsed. And then you have the kind of the beginning of what we call now the, the feudal system in various areas of Christendom, although it was uniformly practiced throughout all areas of what is Europe now. But you had this great political transformation happening. And so power and political power kind of devolved down to local uh, dukes and counts and princes and kings and things like that. And the Pope himself actually right, becomes, uh, in the latter 8th century, a temporal ruler himself. He actually controls land and territory that we call the Papal States, which is in central and northern Italy. And so there were other families and other dukes and other secular lords who wanted to control the papacy for their own benefit, right? Wanted to install their own candidates or wanted to ensure that the pope who was on the throne was very uh, amicable to what they wanted to do. 
And so we have at this time some really incompetently incompetent popes and some bad popes, right? Um, one in particular is this individual called Pope Formosus, who reigned from the end of the ninth century. Uh, and he got into political problems. He began to back various candidates, various secular rulers for the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. He would switch his allegiance. Because this time the Pope actually crowned the Holy Roman Emperor, so he kind of gets, got to choose who was the Emperor. Um, and so various men vied for the Pope's right attention and for his confirmation of the, of the title. And for Moses, just kept switching the, uh, his candidates, right? Well, I'll support you now, and then, oh, next, you know, a week or so, or a month later, whatever, he'll support a different candidate. So that got him into problems. So when he died at the end of the ninth century, one of those candidates that he really upset comes into Rome with an army and decides to get his uh, successor, Pope Stephen, to dig up the dead body of Pope Formosus and actually put Formosus on trial for these trumped-up ecclesial charges. And so this is known as the Cadaver Synod, or the Synod of the Corpse, where literally a, a dead body, the, the former Pope's dead body, Pope Formosus' body, was put on trial uh, in Rome by his successor. Um, and obviously, the Pope Formosus couldn't defend himself, uh, so a deacon was appointed to be his defense attorney, if you will. Uh, and he was convicted of these trumped-up charges, and his body was then uh, thrown into a, a grave. Later up, it was dug open and, and or dug up and thrown into the Tiber River. Um, and so this whole weird synod of the, the corpse, if you will, is just kind of as an example of the difficult times that the Church and the Papacy were dealing with here in the ninth century. Well, I tell you, that, that's interesting to, to try a corpse. I mean, there's no capital, yeah. no capital punishment on that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, very true. The funny, yeah, what were you going to do? Just uh, basically uh, kind of disparage his name, if you will. But it was an attempt, right, for these secular rulers to try to control the Church. Uh, a later pope would annul those whole proceedings and, and, you know, obviously recognize that it was something that was forced upon Pope Stephen uh, and was was uh, you know not something that was valid, if you will. So that's one issue. Later on, you know, things continue to get poor or continue to go badly for the papacy into the 10th century, uh, when you actually have you know a local Italian family known as the Theophylacts who put their own candidate, their own family members on the throne, and that culminates in the horrible papacy of Pope John the Twelfth. And Pope John the Twelfth was a young man, anywhere from 16 to 18 years old. Sources differ who lived very immorally and turned basically Rome into, and the papal palace and residence, into a veritable brothel. Uh, one later historian called this time in the papacy the papal pornocracy, if okay. you will. It was, it was such a difficult time. Okay, well, let's, let's use that as a teaser for uh, the next segment of the program, because we're coming up on a, on, on a break right now. But uh, it, it sounds like you got some uh, interesting stuff on the other side, and... Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll take a break and we'll ask our uh, listeners to stay tuned. We've got more of Steve Weidenkopf, and we're talking about dark times in the papacy. And so we'll see you on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. 
The Mustard Seed Catholic Store is South Dakota's place to purchase Catholic books, gifts, and decor. With locations in Rapid City and Sioux Falls, we are here to provide you with gifts for the Catholic occasions in your life. From baptism to First Communion, confirmation to weddings, and ordinations, we pride ourselves in having local artists share their creative talents, making rosaries, crucifixes, artwork, coffee, and books. We are located in Rapid City on Main Street in the new Diocesan Building or in Sioux Falls on Grange Avenue across from Costco. This is Dr. Ryan Sapo with Lumen Vision in Fargo. Lumen Vision specializes in pediatric eye care and vision therapy. We partner with a national infant eye exam program called Infant C, which provides eye exams for any baby under 12 months old. Many of the major childhood eye problems, such as lazy eyes, eye turns, and ocular diseases, can be detected in this early intervention exam. Infant C eye exams can be scheduled online at www.lumen.vision. Lumen Vision is a proud supporter of babies everywhere and a proud sponsor of Real Presence Radio. I think all we have to do is look around. People are hungering for God, and they don't even know what people are so lost in our world that has tolerance for everything except for Christianity. Mm -hmm. And um, about a year and a half ago, we sponsored a couple into the church, and right at the beginning of RCI, we said, tune in to Catholic Radio. And they did, and they're on fire for their faith. They go to every Catholic event, even before they join the church, they're daily communicants. And... um, The wife prays the rosary with Catholic Radio, and it's just, people want that so badly, even when they don't know it. That's what they're missing. This is Sister Bridget from the Diocese of Rapid City. This is Rowdy Benson from Sacred Heart Parish in Morristown, South Dakota. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back for the the remainder of this half hour of uh, Real Presence Live with Steve Weidenkopf. And uh, as the uh, lead-in announcer said, there are more stories about faith and hope, which is interesting because our topic is basically... Bad popes. So, anyway, um, Steve, we were uh, you were talking about one. I had to interrupt you because of the break. Uh, why don't you just um, take it up from there, and uh, you know we can talk about some more specific examples of uh, some of the uh, dark times of the church or some of the bad popes, and you know how the church survived these things and came out stronger, as you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. I mean, we were before the break, right? We were talking about the pontificate in the mid 10th century of John the Twelfth, who lived really immoral lifestyle while he was pope, and and so what that causes uh, later, bit on, a little bit later. So there's still some issues as we move into the 11th century with the papacy. Again, you have these secular rulers in Italy that are trying to control uh, the church and control the papacy in particular. That one family I mentioned, the Theophilax, actually put their own family members up uh, on the throne of, of St. Peter as well. And so what this leads to eventually, right, as we get into the middle of the later uh, 11th century, is a recognition by many people within the Church uh, that, that there needed to be reform, right? That, that the, way, the current way in which popes are, are picked uh, and are elected, if you will, and, and the amount of secular interference that's going on in the Church needs to end. And so you have a various number of individuals who are clerics and even lay people recognizing there needs to be reform. 
And all of this culminates really in the mid-11th century with the pontificate of Nicholas II, who decides to change the method, the electoral method of the pope, of, of the pope how a pope is actually elected and chosen. So previous to this, right, it was the clergy and people of Rome who would pick the pope. They would elect the pope. Um, and then during this time in the early 11th century, when you were having these difficulties we've been mentioning, one Holy Roman Emperor stepped in and decided that, that he would nominate the Pope, and that, that candidate would be acclaimed and approved by the clergy and people of Rome. Uh, and then Nicholas II, though, and some other reformers along with him, decided that even that was a bit too much, right, too much secular interference. Because if you have an emperor who is, uh, you know, very well disposed to the Church and wants to see the Church flourish and is a holy individual himself, then he more than likely would pick, you know, suitable candidates for the papacy. But if you, if he's not, right, let's say he wants to control the Church or he's not a virtuous man or whatever, he could pick some really bad candidates for the Church. So there was that, still that problem. So what Nicholas II and others uh, that influenced him decide to do is they change the electoral method to uh, focusing and placing it into the hands of the cardinals of the Roman Church. And so that's where we have the electoral method of the Pope being chosen by the College of Cardinals, which is still the electoral method that we use in the Church today, although there's been some changes over the years since the 11th century of, you know, how many, you know, whether you need a third uh, majority, rather, or a two-thirds majority, or what have you. Those, those kinds of particulars of the method have changed, but, but for the most part, since the 11th century, the, the, the primary and principal way in which the Pope is elected and chosen has remained the same. So that's one example of goodness, if you will, or a good thing, a reform coming out of some of these dark issues and dark times we had in the Church's past, especially with some of these uh, you know, immoral Popes who, who uh, didn't live up to the, their calling, if you will. And then if you fast-forward a bit into, into time, right, if we look at another example that many people like to bring up, especially people who are, uh, you know, maybe don't, uh, aren't positive towards the Church or have, you know, a negative view of the Church or even are trying to just, uh, you know, point out bad things to Catholics and, and say, well, why do Catholics have a Pope? You know, look at this horrible time. Um, more often than not, right, the, the historical example that comes up is the Renaissance papacy. Uh, you know, and these men were were uh, popes who lived from the middle part of the of the 15th century into the early 16th century. So, uh, begins with the pontificate of Pope Nicholas V in 1447, and extends all the way to the pontificate of Pope Leo X in 1521. The ten of these popes, known in history as the Renaissance popes, and many of them uh, engaged, or most of them actually engaged in various kinds of abuses, if you will. So they engaged either in what's known as absenteeism, meaning they, they didn't live in Rome, or, you know, they allowed bishops to not live in their own dioceses. Uh, they participated in nepotism, so they appointed their own family members, cousins, or nephews, or even times their sons, to positions of importance in the church. They participated in um, what's called pluralism, which is um, you know, a bit, one man being the bishop of multiple dioceses. Uh, they were focused on greed and wealth and power and, and secular things, if you will. So the best way to describe these Renaissance popes were they, they focused more on being secular princes than on being universal shepherds. It, it, uh, and it, that's really—go ahead. It, so, it sounds like the election reforms that we were talking about just a little bit ago must have waned and those guys got in somehow. <laughs> yeah, it did. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things we see, right, in church history over time is that, you know, there's these, these abuses or problems that need to be re, uh, rectified, if you will. Reformers come along, they produce a solution that make a change. 
the abuse goes away or it becomes less prevalent for, for numbers of centuries, if you will, or for a period of time. And then sadly, some of these abuses will come back into the Church's life. And, and then once again, you need another reform and renewal that will, that will come about uh, to, you know, to rectify the problems again, if you will. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what happens. Sadly, you get these men that, that are picked you know, by the College of Cardinals, but at this point, you have some national robberies that are that have gone on in the papacy or in the college rather cardinals. So you have French cardinals who want a French pope, you have Italian cardinals who want Italian pope. And the French and the Italians can't agree. There's sometimes long periods of time where, where there isn't a pope or they haven't chosen one yet. So long periods of interregnum uh, that all precedes this Renaissance papacy period of time. Um, and so when you get to the Renaissance papacy, the, the popes are stronger, if you will, in terms of how of exercising their authority. But these men, in particular, exercise that authority in a more secular way rather than a spiritual way. Um, and so there's some good, if you will, that's produced because of that, right? We have all the um, beautiful Renaissance arts and architecture that, uh, you know, because these men were great patrons of artists, Renaissance artists in Italy at the time. So you have... The great St. Peter's Basilica in, in Rome now is, is a product of this time, right? Uh, Julius II begins the, con- the, the construction of that um, grand, grand Basilica. He, he is, you know, one of these Renaissance popes. Um, you know, uh, all, they, they patronize Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello, you know, these great Italian Renaissance are living and, and working during this time as well. But it does cause problems for the Church, right, because they're not focused on, on the papacy or focus on the Church and spiritual things. And perhaps the poster child, if you will, of the, these bad Renaissance popes is the, the Spanish pope Rodrigo Borgia, Alexander VI. Uh, and he's usually um, you know, brought up as an example of how things were bad during the Church at, at this time. Uh, and, you know, Hollywood loves to, to utilize these stories as well. A few years ago, there was a cable TV show on Showtime called The Borgias, which focused on the pontificate of Alexander VI and... and you know, obviously there was some uh, dramatization in that show, but but in some sense it did accurately portray, you know, Alexander the Sixth and his immoral papacy. He lived an immoral life, had a mistress while he was pope. Uh, he had uh, illegitimate sons while he was a cardinal, and allowed those sons to kind of at least one of them in particular to terrorize uh, Italy, marauding up and down the coast and, and the, the country of Italy with his own band of merry men, if you will, uh, and not stopping him. Uh, so it was, a, it was a dark time in the Church's history, but as we move forward in history, we'll see that the Great Catholic Reformation will happen later on in the 16th century, where greater focus will be placed on bishops being those spiritual shepherds that they need to be, and including um, the Holy Spirit bringing some great saints uh, to the papacy during this time, especially Pope St. Pius V, who really was the one who implemented the Great Catholic Reformation after the dark times of the Protestant Revolution. Okay, so um, <laughs> I guess it's um, you know, it, it's interesting to think about you know the these dark times and you know our survival of those things. It seems to me, and we were talking about it earlier, just a little bit about how uh, it seems that uh, the church, like governments and anything else, you can have a perfect form of government, but over a period of time, it seems like our fallen nature seems to uh, kind of kick in, and then it gets corrupted somehow. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, you know, a good point to be made, though, about that is, is that despite the failings of of, pe- of those people who are called to various offices, right, whether it be political office or, or spiritual office, right, the, the poor and, and uh, you know, immoral behavior of those people um, doesn't invalidate the office itself, right? So even though we've had 
uh, popes who have, again, you know, been less than virtuous and lived immoral lives or exercised bad leadership uh, or made bad, you know, decisions, if you will, doesn't mean that uh, that uh, the papacy should somehow not be in office in the church, right? Or that, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't, um, you know, that, that, that Christ somehow was wrong when he instituted the office of the papacy, right, mm-hmm. on Peter. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, our doctrine is sound, even though we have people out there who, you know, maybe in leadership positions that aren't good examples of that. But it seems to me, you know, the the deposit of faith is the deposit of faith, and uh, that's that that has survived all of this. And I think that's important for people to understand that, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a, a pope does not necessarily make the church. Exactly right. Yeah, and and as we see throughout history too, right, that when there are times of crisis and problems, and I highlight this in my my latest book. Um, you know, there are reformers, right? The people will, whether clerical or lay, will come forward, uh, will focus first on reforming their own lives, making sure that they are the best disciple of Christ, that they can be living their vocation of holiness as best as they can. And once they've, they've done that, then they will you know, call for and clamor in a very obedient and, and in a, a manner of charity, call for reform in the Church and call for various abuses to be rectified and stopped, and, and for a great renewal to occur. And I and as I illustrated in my latest book, Light from Darkness, we see that happen uh, time and time again in the Church. So as, as Catholics, living in a time of, of crisis or turmoil or, or having issues with, you know, or, uh, bishops, you know, or, or that are they're not, uh, you know, acting in the way that they should, it shouldn't be a source of scandal. I mean, it's a source of scandal for us, but it shouldn't erode our faith to the point we might leave the Church. We have to trust in Christ. Our faith is in Him, not in 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 these men. Rather, uh, and although we respect the office that they've been uh, been called to, and so we live as, as best as we can, rooted in Christ and, and living a prayer life as best as we can, and uh, presenting a good example to others of who Jesus is. Okay, great, Steve. You can hear the music coming up here. So we're coming up on a hard break. We want to thank you for being with us again, and I hope to have you on again another time. And we're talking to Steve Weidenkopf, and stay tuned for more Real Presence Live on the other side of the break.